Well, today's passage is considered by many, if not most, to be the most difficult passage to interpret in the entire New Testament. Uh, None other than Martin Luther, who was pretty confident about everything, wrote this. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. Okay, so that's quite a statement. And I bring up the complexity of this passage in the beginning uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm, I'm eager to lower your expectations for this, this sermon this morning. You're not going to hear a brand new interpretation that nobody's ever discovered before. I will present some of the main interpretations that people have, have landed on over the years, and I'll tell you the one I prefer. And second, I'm, I'm really eager to point out that, that this Passages such as this one are extremely rare in the New Testament. The meaning of most passages is rather apparent when you read them humbly. Uh, Theologians use an expression, the the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. I've got a little note at the bottom of your, your sermon outline, but that simply teaches that it's the idea that those who approach the Scriptures seeking God's help and willing to obey what they find there, uh, generally speaking, find that the Scripture is very clear about what it teaches. And so it doesn't mean there are no difficult Scriptures. It doesn't mean that everything is equally clear. It doesn't mean you never need help in understanding Scriptures. If that were the case, God would not have given teachers and scholars to the body of Christ. But the perspicuity of Scripture affirms that the message of the Bible is understandable to those who approach it humbly, seeking God's wisdom. Uh, And when I was in seminary, I had an Old Testament professor, Dr. Walt Kaiser, And he was fond of telling classes such as ours. He said, my father, who did not have a high school education, he has a better theology than most of you who will graduate from this seminary. Why is that? Because once a year, he read the Bible from cover to cover for about seven decades, okay? And so the transforming power of the Scripture It's apparent, it's observable in the lives of many, many people who have gone to the Scriptures humbly. So with that in mind, I want us to wade out into 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Last week's passage challenged us to imitate Christ when people mistreat us, not because we've done something wrong, but simply because we're doing the will of God. In 3.17, we read this. Peter said, "'For it is better if God should will it so,' that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Uh, We usually don't suffer for doing what is right. Generally, we are appreciated and respected for doing what is right. But sometimes others become threatened or jealous or convicted by our behavior when they see us doing what is right. And sometimes they may mistreat us. And so people may ridicule you for a conviction that you have from Scripture. Uh, People might accuse you of being holier than thou. They might exclude you from gatherings. They might discriminate against you in the workplace or in other contexts. Well, today's passage flows from this verse, and Peter reminds his readers that Jesus Christ also suffered unjustly, not for doing something wrong, but for doing the ultimate 
good, what is right. And earlier in Peter, Peter had, had pointed to Jesus as an example, an example of, of suffering. He said in, in 2.21 that Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And so that's a theme in First Peter, but, but in this passage, the emphasis is not that we should follow Jesus' pattern, we should, but the emphasis is that he suffered unjustly and then was victorious over sin and over evil. So we read this in verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so once again, Peter says, fix your eyes on Jesus and notice what happened to him after he suffered unjustly, because what happened to Christ will happen to those who are in Christ, not identically, but essentially. And so he points out that that Jesus died as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. He died as the just for the unjust, or the righteous for the unrighteous. And by doing, and when he did that, he brought us to God. By paying for our sin, Jesus made it possible for us to have unhindered fellowship with, Christ, with, with God. And of course, his suffering was unique in what he accomplished, uh, but his experience suggests that our suffering is never wasted. When you suffer unjustly, it doesn't mean that God isn't paying attention. It doesn't mean that that evil will ultimately win. His suffering suggests that there is a redemptive quality when we suffer unjustly. As we discussed last week, when we suffer for doing what is right, we have a unique opportunity to put on display for people the character of Christ. You can't show people how, people can't really understand how Jesus suffered unless they see us imitating him in our suffering. At the end of verse 18, he adds, having been put to death in the flesh, that's the crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit, that's the resurrection. So far, so good. Things get interesting when Peter adds in verses 19 and 20, in which also, that refers to being made alive in the spirit, being made alive in the spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We got, so that's interesting, isn't it? We've got four main questions to answer, four issues here. Uh, When did Jesus go and make this proclamation? When was it? Was it in Noah's day? Was it after the crucifixion or was it after his resurrection? And then second, where did he go? Uh, Did he go to earth in Noah's day? Did he descend into hell after the crucifixion on Holy Saturday? Or did he go to this prison, uh, which was somewhere else after the resurrection? And then we need to discern who are these spirits. They could be human beings who were alive in Noah's day, uh, they could be the spirits of humans who have died uh, in hell. Uh, they could be evil spirits, fallen angels. 
And then what was the nature of this proclamation that Jesus made? Did he go and proclaim the gospel? Was he offering them salvation? Or did he go and proclaim victory over uh, these spirits imprisoned? And so we got many, many interpretive issues here. We even got to, to verse 20 in which Jesus talks, or which Peter talks about, baptism now saves you, okay? One commentator has calculated that there are, are um, 180 possible exegetical combinations in this passage. And you can understand that, right? Good news. I'm only going to give you three, okay? We'll leave 177 out there, but uh, three main main uh, interpretations, and I'm going to be as clear as possible. They say a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And so uh, I'm going to try to be as clear as possible, but I can't guarantee that. We've got these listed in your, in your bulletin there. The first one, the first view is that after Jesus died on the cross, he descended into hell and offered salvation to those who perished in the flood. Okay, uh, the, the descended into hell. If you grew up in a church that uh, recited the Apostles' Creed, you probably recognize that. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, of course, not everyone who believes the Apostles' Creed believes that Jesus descended into hell and offered salvation to departed uh, humans, uh, but uh, that would be the case for those who see this passage as teaching that Jesus descended into hell and then made proclamation to imprisoned spirits who were disobedient in Noah's day. And that's problematic because this, this type of post-mortem conversion, I mean, becoming, experiencing salvation after death, is not really taught, advocated elsewhere in Scripture. The second view is that the pre-incarnate Christ spoke through Noah to warn people of God's judgment. And so it's the pre-incarnate Christ. We have an unfortunate autocorrect in your bulletin today, and that's, that's on me. I typed in pre-incarnate, and it changed it to reincarnate. And so this, this passage is complex enough without introducing reincarnation into the mix. And so, sorry, sorry. You can just, so if you got up and put a P before reincarnate, okay? And so pre-incarnate simply means pre, before the incarnation, before Jesus became one of us a little over 2,000 years ago. And so this view is that Christ spoke through Noah to warn people of the flood and God's judgment. And so they were alive when Noah preached to them, but since they were dead, when Peter wrote this letter, he calls them spirits that are now imprisoned. And in support of this view is verses like 1 Peter 1.11 that says that the Spirit of Christ spoke to and presumably through the prophets of old, which could have included Noah. The third view is quite a bit more complex than the first two, but I think it best reflects the actual text of these verses. And this view holds... Is everybody still with me here? You doing okay? Mostly good? So this view holds that the resurrected Christ proclaimed his victory over sin and over evil to the spirits who disobeyed during Noah's day. 
And this interpretation preserves the progression between verses 19 and 20. Christ was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit. And then he went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison. The same verb translated, uh, the verb is translated, he went. And verse 19 is found again in verse 22, which speaks of Jesus having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So it, again, it would see a kind of an inclusio in verse 19 and, and 22 talking about this same ascension to the right hand of God. And so this view understands Peter to be saying that when Jesus went into heaven at his ascension, he proclaimed victory over the powers of darkness that were active in Noah's day. So he wasn't offering salvation. He was making a pronouncement of his own victory. Now, you may be wondering, what's the deal with (laughs) the spirits in Noah's day? There were evil spirits in every generation. Why would he zero in and focus on the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah? Well, it turns out that, uh, and again, these are historical, and we're going to talk about some historical issues and some extra-biblical writings. Apparently, in in, uh, Peter's day, in Asia Minor, the the story of Noah was very popular, uh, even among Gentiles. Jews, of course, knew it from the Hebrew Bible, but Gentiles also knew it. They they found coins from the 2nd and 3rd century B.C. On one side of the coin, you have a picture of the emperor. On the other side of the coin, you have pictures of Noah and his wife. Uh, There was even a tradition that there's a town in in Central Asia Minor, the name of the town is basically Ark. It's the Hebrew word for Ark. And so the, the thought is that the Ark actually rested on a mountain in Central Asia Minor. Furthermore, what Peter writes in these verses seems to be based on a writing that is known as First Enoch. You may remember Enoch. He was the grandfather of Noah. He's the one that walked with God, and then he was not. He was, and then he was not. uh, Apparently, he was taken into heaven uh, without dying. And uh, this writing, which is attributed to Enoch, embellishes the narrative of Genesis 6 leading up to the flood. And if you remember Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God uh, took wives from the daughters of men and then they had offspring. And so this first Enoch embellishes this story, and it adds all sorts of details that apparently were fairly well known in the culture, Asia Minor, in the first century. And so the, this, uh, my understanding is that this book, this uh, movie about Noah that came out a f- few years ago, really takes a lot of these, these teachings from first Enoch and includes them. For example, uh, the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6, Uh, Enoch says they were watchers, and they're the ones that took wives from uh, from among humans, and that uh, the the children that were born to them, their offspring, became giants. And it was from the bodies of these giants that evil spirits came, and they seduced humanity, and they taught them all sorts of evil and wickedness, led them away from God. And that's what prompted God to, to uh, uh, judge the world. 
And Enoch also says that in order to restrain the evil on these earth, these spirits were put in prison until the great consummation, until the conclusion of the age. And so according to this this view, Peter makes reference to this well-known plot, and he declares that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus marks the consummation of the age. And at his ascension, he proclaimed to these imprisoned spirits that all angels and principalities and powers are now subject to him. And so this view doesn't endorse the entire book of uh, First Enoch, and it doesn't endorse everything that I've just explained. Mainly, it affirms that there were imprisoned spirits from, that were disobedient in the days of Noah. And so, again, there, there are issues with all, three of these, with all three of these interpretations. That was a pretty complex uh, explanation, right? That was very complex. But uh, the example of Noah is especially relevant because his context was so much like the Christians in Asia Minor. You have a small group of Christians that are surrounded by a culture that is hostile to it. And so just as Noah was saved through the water. So for Noah, the waters were not uh, his destruction. They were his salvation. Just as Noah was saved through the waters uh, of the flood, the followers of Christ experienced salvation through the baptism waters. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, corresponding to that, corresponding to Noah and his family being saved through the flood waters, which kept the ark afloat, Peter says that baptism now saves you, you who believe in Jesus. Now, as you know, we don't teach that just uh, the, the uh, uh, ritual of baptism in itself doesn't save a person. I think that Peter's using baptism here the way baptism is used in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, when somebody gets saved, somebody experiences salvation, three things are true. They repent, they believe the gospel, and they get baptized. The New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized believer. So when you see one, the other two are implied. And I think that's the case here. So when Peter mentions baptism saves you, he's talking about this complex of repentance, faith, and baptism. Those three things don't all have the same function. We believe that a person is saved through faith in Jesus Christ, but it's implied that you've repented, you've believed, and then in the New Testament context, all who repented and believed were baptized. And so he says that baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus weren't raised from the dead, baptism would be nothing more than an empty ritual. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, baptism is now this this powerful, acted-out parable of what is true of the believer in Christ. Uh, Because Christ has been raised from the dead, the believer has died with Christ and has also been raised to newness of life, a new way of life. And Peter qualifies this statement in two ways. First of all, the baptism that saves, it's not removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not just a a washing ritual that affects uh, the, the outside of your body, but it's an appeal or a pledge to God for a good conscience. And people understand that in different ways. But I, I, would, I think he's saying there, he's referring to when a person gets baptized, that person is, is pledging that they will be faithful to God throughout this life. By God's grace, I will walk with you through this life. And that way of living leads to a good conscience, a clean conscience. Uh, 
And so Peter has his readers think back to their baptism as a way of encouraging them to be faithful in the midst of opposition. And having mentioned Jesus' resurrection, Peter adds that he was raised from the dead. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And so when we talk about the clarity of Scripture, populists agree on the interpretation of verses 19 and 20. Everybody agrees that this passage lands by talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ and his victory over all the evil powers in the universe. And so Jesus didn't merely win the victory over spirits that were disobedient in Noah's day. Every angelic being, every authority, every power was subjected to him. And so what does this mean for the believer in Jesus Christ? What does the victory of Jesus over evil and unjust, unjust suffering, what, does that, what are the implications for us when we encounter evil and unjust suffering? Well, among other things, this means that since we have been raised up and we too are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we engage spiritual battles in this life from a place of ultimate victory. We fight spiritual battles from, a, from the, the vantage point of ultimate victory. And so think about the, the battles that you're fighting right now. Think about the struggles, the conflicts in your life, especially those that are a result of you doing what is right. You're being mistreated because of your loyalty to Christ. Think about the things that discourage you from seeking God with all your heart. Think about the things that make you want to give up. Think about things that fill you with fear and anxiety. It could be a circumstance that's beyond your control. Uh, it could be a relationship that's gone from bad to worse. It could be a sinful habit that threatens to destroy everything that you hold dear. Whatever you're battling right now, you need to know that what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 is true. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle ultimately is not against other human beings. Relationships matter. Human beings affect us. That's beyond, beyond doubt. But your battle is not against other people. It's against the very authorities and powers that have been subjected to the risen and exalted Christ. His victory is your victory. And we understand our identity in Christ, and we understand that we are raised up and seated with Christ. Fundamentally, we look at our battles differently. And today we're going to come to the Lord's table where we remember that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. And as we do, I would just urge you to bring your battles into the presence of God and invite him to show you anything, anything you need to see about the battles in your life. Uh, he may whisper to you, you've identified the wrong enemy. You're thinking about humans too much. You need to understand that, that you are not battling flesh and blood. And therefore, you're using the wrong weapons. Invite God to show you, am I using the right weapons in the battles I'm fighting? And Ephesians 6 says that the weapons that are powerful in the spiritual realm are these basic foundational practices in the Christian life. Prayer, faith, the word of God, salvation, the gospel, righteousness. These are things that are powerful in the spiritual realm. 
Is this the way you're living your life? Are you expecting these things to be effective in the spiritual battles that you're fighting? And so if you've been fighting the wrong battles or using the wrong weapons, admit that to God and let the bread and the cup symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus remind you that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit and now he is exalted to the place of authority, the place of power, the right hand of God himself. Bring yourself, bring your battles before God today. I'd like for those who are going to serve, serve the Lord's table, come forward at this time. Here at Faith, we, we practice what's called open communion, meaning that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of your denominational background or church affiliation, if you belong to Christ, we would love for you to join us here at the Lord's table. And so we will pass the bread. And if you need uh, allergen-free bread, you'll find it in the, the tray in the middle. Hold the bread until everyone's received, and then we'll eat together. Uh, if you, if, and then we'll pass the cup, and after everyone's received the cup, we will drink together. Heavenly Father, we bring ourselves to you uh, this time. God, this is, this is your table. This, is your, uh, this, is, this belongs to you. God, may we remember your death, your resurrection, your exaltation during this time. We bring you ourselves. We bring you our battles. God, show us anything we need to see. Open our eyes. Uh, we belong to you. We give your spirit uh, invitation. Do within us, do among us what you desire. In Jesus' name.